Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 57. Today I want to share a perception that I've come into recently. And I believe that at its root, it's going to help us with how we see God as Father and just correct what I believe to be a misunderstanding and then a mispropagating of of that understanding uh, in the form of teaching. We've I've grew up believing this. I've believed it myself for, well, really until just recently. So I want to share that. Before I jump right in, I want to thank you for uh, stopping in to uh, follow along with this podcast. Uh, If you're new, I appreciate you, and I'm thankful to see how God is taking this message across the world, countries that I never would have been able to, to be at or be into. I'm um, finding that you are listening, and it's uh, it's a wonderful and encouraging thing. So I, I'm thankful to God for how He's multiplying the reach of this podcast. So we'll jump in today. We're going to start with the verse out of Matthew 27. This is a familiar scene, and and oftentimes that lends itself that familiarity lends itself to how easy we can just gloss right over. And it's not until we stop and really consider to chew on it. I think Paul uses the language meditate. So this is an opportunity for us to approach it from the perspective of a child it's looking at things with fresh eyes that maybe it is not stained by the conceptions that we have, the frameworks of thinking that we have. So let's approach this and think about what I believe Scripture reveals and how it can correct our misunderstanding of this Scripture. So the scene is here towards the end in Matthew 27 Jesus has been tried, he's been deemed guilty, and and now he is, we find him on the cross being crucified. And we'll start in verse 45. It says, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lema Sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this is really the the epitome of what birthed this episode. We teach, and I've understood this to mean that God himself turned his back on or covered his face from Christ on the cross, he was forsaken. I mean, when we look at the text, it's easy for us to just say, well, that's what it says right there. 
Jesus, who being God in the flesh, says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we then take that and understand it to mean that, well, God must have forsaken him. But as we've taught this, you know, the underlying theme of why we believe that indeed God forsook Jesus upon the cross, he became sin, the kind of the pillar or foundational text that often we will draw to support that belief that God forsook or turned his face from Jesus is comes out of Habakkuk 1.13. So, um, before we turn there, though, I want to read out of uh, Psalm 22. Now, if, if, you, if you are familiar with this psalm, then you'll notice the, in, really the amazing parallel and, and what I believe to be David speaking prophetically of, of Christ and the, the things that he would endure. Now, no doubt is there a potential parallel in, because this is written, Psalm 22 is written by David, no doubt that David's life, whether it's in his escaping the, the clutches of Saul, who uh, wanted to put him to death out of his jealousy and bitterness. No doubt that when David's sons would eventually usurp usurp his throne and he was fleeing, I think it was Absalom, no doubt that David is having some parallel moments. But if, if you take Psalm 22 as a whole, it, without doubt speaks of that which would occur to Jesus in and through and beyond the cross. So if we look at, keeping in mind Matthew 27, 46, why have you, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So now we look at Psalm 22, verse 1, the opening line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, Jesus on the cross says a phrase, says a sentence that is a direct quote from Psalm 22 that David wrote. Now, it really, it goes deeper than just Jesus is quoting out of Psalms. Let's just read a few verses. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I think I would absolutely recommend you to read the entire chapter at your leisure. But for the sake of time, I'll just pull uh, portions out of Psalm 22. So verse 1, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. 
Verse 3, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. So notice here, there's that question that we, all of us at some point in our lives, in our journey, in our Christian life, we, we find ourselves feeling like God is not near. We feel like we are forsaken. I, I am in anguish. I cry out, but I'm not finding an answer and I'm not finding any rest. But important to see what David writes in that next verse 3, but you are enthroned. David is, is writing this and don't think of it just as these are words that David is uttering. Think of these also as words that that Christ is saying to God the Father. So there's there's this com it's it's simple but it's complex. There's it's this it's this beautiful waltz of experience of David something that is bubbling out of him as he writes pen to paper. And it says, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. He is affirming that despite what I feel, despite what I'm experiencing, you, God, are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one that Israel praises. In verse 4, he says, in you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you and you delivered them. Sometimes we take reminding. We have to, when we experience those, those moments of, where are you? I don't feel you near. We have to have those verse 3 and verse 4 moments of, we have to remind ourselves, no, God, you are enthroned and you are the one that we praise. And Verse 4 affirms that he is worthy to be trusted. And when they trusted him, they found deliverance. We see in back in verse 6, we see again this, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. You know, this happened to David. This happened to Jesus. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Here, notice this. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. How, how familiar is that scene of Christ on the cross where, where the, the people, the onlookers, are saying, is he not able to deliver himself even after he delivered those? This is, this is speaking prophetically of what Christ would experience on the cross, this scorn, this uh, disrepute. Verse 9, Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. 
From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. Verse 14, I am poured out like water. Think of the water that poured from this, the pierced side, water and blood. Now, uh, this also speaks of when one is poured out like water, it speaks of this, there's nothing left in me. I am dry. And all my bones are out of joint. No doubt that this likely would have happened as Jesus was abused and beaten prior to the cross. No doubt this would happen when he was lifted up and set into the ground, when the weight of his body would, would pull back to the earth and ligaments would tear, bones no doubt dislocate out of the pressure. But remember, no bones. This was a, a prophetic uh, piece that was written of Maybe in Isaiah, I can't recall, but not a bone would be broken. So notice that specific language there. All my bones are out of joint, but they're not broken. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Remember, Christ on the cross, he was thirsty. And they gave him the, the uh, vinegar mixture for him to drink. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Now we have no, we have no um, scriptural revelation that that indeed happened to David. But absolutely, without question, this happens to Jesus. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. Verse 18, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. This is absolutely what happened to, to Jesus. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dogs. Gentiles are actually often referred to as, as dogs. And Gentiles are a part, are among those that crucified Christ. Not only the Romans, Gentiles, but also his people. Even Israel was responsible for this crime against God. Rescue me, verse 21, from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. That's an important transition. We're reading the reality of what's happening to to a life, the difficulties that they experience and they feel, all of the, all the 
abominable acts that can occur to a person, namely Christ here in this specific example, but we can relate in one way or another to aspects of what's happening in our own unique way and unique story. And so 22 is an important transition because he's saying, despite all this that's happening, despite all that I feel and and am struggling with, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. And then 23 begins what I believe to be an execution of 22. He says, I will declare your name. And so 23 is that in action. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. This is an important verse. And I believe the antithesis of what we teach about my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 24, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. If, if you're not following that, let me put some language for the he and him. For he, God, has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one, Jesus. He, God, has not hidden his face from him, Jesus, but, ha- but has listened to his, Jesus, cry for help. So this begs the question, why are we so ingrained in teaching and understanding that God turned his face away from, turned his back on Jesus? At that point when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What props, what teaching is propping that up or what, or what, or what scripture is propping that up? I think we hear this a lot, so... This is something that I want to, to add to it, but it's Habakkuk 1.13. And, and it says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Now, this is out of the NIV version. I think other versions will read this to say, um, God cannot look upon sin But something that I want to provide some insight into this verse. We use this to justify, well, God cannot look upon sin. Jesus, on the cross, became sin. So therefore, we must conclude that God cannot look upon sin, therefore he cannot look upon Jesus who became sin. So therefore he had to turn his face from Jesus. Therefore we think that we're justified in saying that, oh, 
you have forsaken him because he became sin because you cannot look upon sin. You see the progression in our thinking. And on the surface, that seems what somewhat reasonable or rational. Here's some insight that I feel is important for us to remember. When we look at this verse in Habakkuk, and is saying your eyes are too pure to look on evil, or God cannot look upon sin. Notice in Habakkuk, in chapter 1 through verse 4, Habakkuk is complaining to, to God, to the Lord. And he's saying, you know, how long? How long until you help How long will you hear these cries? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? And and so from one to verse one to four, Habakkuk is complaining to the Lord. Now verse five through eleven, the Lord answers him. In verse twelve, Habakkuk begins his second complaint to the Lord. And in that complaint, we find the verse 13 where we say, God cannot look upon sin. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. So keeping that that in mind, we then move forward in the text. Habakkuk completes his complaint up to chapter 2, verse 1. Then in chapter 2, verse 2, the Lord answers Habakkuk. And that concludes the remainder up to verse 20. So, if we take if we take that verse in 13 at face value and, and say, okay, well, this says that God cannot look upon, e- upon sin or your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. If we think that we can just take that at face value for what it is and then use that to justify our understanding of other scripture, I want to draw your attention to Job 9.13. So we'll go to Job 9.13. So if you're familiar with Job, you know that he suffers a very difficult, doesn't do it justice, but um, he, he suffers great loss of his family, of his possessions, of everything that he holds dear. He has some friends that visit him. They go back and forth and trying to understand what it is, why it is that this has happened to Job. So in verse uh, chapter 9, verse 13, Job says, and let me just read a a few verses before and after just so you can kind of see a a bigger picture, but uh, Job is speaking of the immeasurable greatness of God. I'll start in verse 10. It says, He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted, When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. 
What does that remind you of? It reminds me instantly of Moses asking to see God's glory. And God shows him the back of him. Verse 12, if he snatches away, who can stop him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? Verse 13, God does not restrain his anger. Even the cohorts of Rahab cowered at his feet. Verse 14, how then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. So the verse that I'm highlighting here is Job 9.13. God does not restrain his anger. Now, if we take this at face value, we would say, oh, well, I guess God does not restrain his anger. But we can think of countless examples, countless times in even just the interaction between Moses, Israel, and, the, and, and God to where God did in fact restrain his anger. Many times, God was ready to start with a new people because of their, their lack of obedience, because of their adulterated hearts. God was ready to, to end those people and start new. But God relented. He restrained his anger. So, this begs the question then, at least as I think on these things, what can I then gather from that verse in Habakkuk? I think a very important um, pre-understanding is in Habakkuk. He is praying, he is complaining to the Lord, and then the Lord answers. If, if your and my prayers to God were written, would they be free from theological problems? Of course, they wouldn't be free of those problems. We would have those problems. We would have our prayers to God would, if they were analyzed by people who knew God better, there would be many issues of a theological nature in those prayers. And keeping that in mind, that what Habakkuk is saying to God is something that he is, is personally expressing out of, the, out of the depths of his soul. He is expressing it to God. Now, that doesn't mean that what he is saying to God is unquestionable reality. We are getting to peer into the past. We are getting to peer into private conversation between a man and God. And what we have done is we have allowed a portion of Scripture taken out of context, 
and applied to gird up our understanding of how we process another scripture. And this happens all the time. And I'm not a, I'm not a huge uh, proponent of like the context battle. I believe that context is meaningful. I believe that context is important. I don't live and die on context because I think things can be drawn from, gleaned from that may not fit the specific context that, but I digress. We are peering into a private conversation between Habakkuk and God. Now, if you'll notice, though, in, in, that, in that prayer or conversation, we know that God does actually um, restrain his anger. We've seen it many times just in the character of Moses and his ministry to the Lord. But countless other times, God has restrained his anger. So what I, what, what I suggest is that what is, what is prayed by, by a person in the Bible is not to be held to a unreasonable standard if, if, if there's not a man or woman alive that could meet that same standard. Now, this doesn't jeopardize, before you get nervous, this doesn't jeopardize the, the validity, the integrity of the word. Here's, here's what we need to do in, in Habakkuk. Remember, it's, it's a progression. It's a conversation. Habakkuk complaining, the Lord answering. Habakkuk complains a second time, and then beginning in chapter 2, verse 2, the Lord answers. Go through that and see how the Lord responds to Habakkuk. Does he confirm or affirm his statement of God does not restrain his anger? He does not. He doesn't affirm it. He doesn't confirm it. Now, it would be different to say, well, if the Lord then responded and said that, and he validates that which Habakkuk says, then that would be a, a completely different story. We'd be having a different conversation. But the Lord doesn't affirm that. We are given the ability to peer into a conversation. We shouldn't read into that more than we ought to. So, this then takes us to the question, okay, if, if, if God did not forsake Jesus in terms of, in, in the sense of turning his back on or turning his face away from him, I want to draw our attention to a couple of texts one is out of Deuteronomy 31.6. So we'll turn this, we'll turn to Deuteronomy 
So this is this is Old Testament era. Thirty one six. Joshua here is going to succeed Moses, and this is some conversation that that God says to Joshua. He says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. So this is an this is an Old Testament promise specifically given to Joshua. But as God is no respecter of persons, there can be reality and truth gleaned from this promise to Joshua, even going forward in in other peoples and other generations. So he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We will turn next to Hebrews 13 verse 5. And we don't know the author of Hebrews. It remains unclear. But it says in verse 5, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Now remember, that, that was a passage we just actually read in Deuteronomy 31.6. So the author of Hebrews, a new covenantal era, integrates a promise that's found in the Old Covenantal era. Why is this important? There's a promise of never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. There's a promise found both in the old and the new, and the author of Hebrews reintegrates that into the covenant that we have today through Christ. So this begs the question. Why then do we believe that Jesus was forsaken? But we, as humanity, either in the old covenant or in the new covenant, neither of us were forsaken. How is it that we think God fulfilled his promise to us, but not to Christ? I believe that our understanding of that passage, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe our understanding of this starts to unravel. And I think it must unravel because we've misapplied what that passage means. And then in doing so, we've compromised how, one, we've compromised seeing correctly, we've compromised seeing and understanding truth, and that also, in a subconscious fear, allows us to believe that, well, if he turned his back on Jesus, then he could, or may, or will, turn his back on me. Many, many people have experienced disappointment, broken promises, unfulfilled um, roles by fathers throughout their lives. 
And that predisposes a person to then be very suspect of God because he is our father. And that creates a hurdle, an obstacle that they must overcome so that they can see God rightly. Well, I think when we correct this misunderstanding of Christ on the cross, he was never forsaken. He was never turned. His back, God's, God's back to him was never turned. This is cleared up as we stated in Psalm twenty-two, twenty-four. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him. So when we picture Christ on the cross uttering these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We need to stop imagining God looking down from heaven and then turning his face away from his only begotten son. This is just not what happened. It is Jesus on the cross is connecting. He's bridging the old to the new. He's saying from the cross, look at what David spoke of in Psalm 22. And as you personally read through the remainder of Psalm 22, he goes on to write about the promises. There is phenomenal promises, the poor being satisfied and eating. Those who seek the Lord will, will praise him forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And families and nations will bow down before him. In verse 28, for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Verse 31, we'll go to 30. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn. That's us, that's you and me. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn. He has done it. I believe that that Jesus is speaking of the promises written before he was even before he was even thought of in terms of in, in terms of subsequent generations you know David's long before Christ's birth and David prophetically writing is speaking of that which will take place through his lineage through his offspring Jesus. And ultimately, the consummation of chapter 22 provides us with the consummation of what will be accomplished through what happens to Jesus on the cross. As I was reading the end of 22 myself in my own personal time, and it says, He has done it, I could not help but remember the words that Jesus uttered from the cross. It is finished. I believe these two very intricately and intimately dance together, resounding the same reality. It is finished. He has accomplished it. So, what is the point 
of all of this? What is the, what is the question that we are, are putting forth today? I challenge you to rethink what you believe to be true about the forsaking of Christ on the cross. He was not forsaken. God was there. God was looking upon him. I would encourage you to read the the chapter of in Habakkuk where the Lord responds to Habakkuk's second complaint. This would be Habakkuk 2, uh, verse 2 through 20. Look at that through the lens of what the end of Psalm 22 is accomplishing. There is a, there is a significant parallel there. So... Um, I, I pray and hope that this allows us to, one, see correctly, see rightly, see truth as I believe that this is. What else does this do? I pray that it will also silence the subconscious fear that God will turn his back on you like he turned his back on Christ. He, without, without question in my heart, I believe he did not turn his back as scripture would support. And if that's true, then he will not turn his back on you. Now there comes a moment in every life where we run out of time to come into agreement with Jesus's lordship, with his leadership. We must deny ourselves to follow him. And so if you haven't yet made the decision to deny yourself and come under the leadership, the lordship of Jesus, now's the time. Because we all have borrowed time on this earth. And when our last breath is breathed, Eternity lies before us. This body, this physical body, it ends its existence. But our spirit lives on. Very incredibly, we are, we are an eternal being. Now we have an existence, we have a birth. But from that birth, there is no end. There's a physical death, but our spirit lives on. And at the end of the end of all time, when, when God comes back, when Christ comes back and, and the dead is raised and there's a judgment um, that is before him and a separating of who will spend eternity with God and apart from God, there is an eternity that lies before us. So in essence, we are an eternal, we are an eternal um, being. from birth unto eternity. And so we must face a, a choice. We subject ourselves to his, the Lord's leadership, Jesus's leadership, or not. So I pray that this draws you, this beckons you to trust in God more wholly and more completely. And I pray that it also serves to correct the image of God as Father.
because I believe that the under the other has misrepresented God as a father to his begotten son, Jesus. So I pray this is an encouragement. I thank you for taking the time. Uh, and we will see you on the next one. God bless.